So uh, we're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 29. That's page 17 of the Matthew's Gospels in front of you. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, I have four secondary school teachers in my immediate family, all the women, Four out of eight, 50%, a wife, a daughter, and two daughters-in-law. So if you want to know anything about history or biology, geography or theology, I'm your man, as they say. And I asked two of them this Sunday evening what the schools are currently teaching in RE these days, and I have to say they were rather sheepish. Ah, we know it's a bit passé and somewhat of a cliché, but they still teach the year nines, the blindfold men and the elephant, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. 
Four individuals, each blindfold, go into a room. There in the room is an elephant in the middle of the room. Each individual is asked to grab one part of the elephant, one the trunk, one the tail, one a leg, one its tummy, and so forth. And each is asked to describe what they're touching. They describe something really very different, but in reality, they're all grasping part of the same beast. And so it is with the religions of the world. Now, that concept of doing religion, passé, clichéd, as it is, was expounded vigorously by a chap called Professor Don Cupid in the 1980s, and he published his highly influential Sea of Faith, which caused a huge stir when it came out in the mid-1980s, and that was then serialized by the BBC and popularized by them. He was professor in theology in the university where I did my undergraduate and postgraduate studies. And so it was quite a stir at the time. The thesis is something like this. You know, God has no real objective existence. Or or if he does, he's hidden. And so concepts of God emerge out of, well, the totality of human religious experience and practice. And Only as one begins to put together the vast array of human attempts to define God or get close to God, only then can you get an understanding of what the totality of God is. Hence, the blindfold individuals and the elephant in the room. And so it transpires that religion is fundamentally a human project, each to his own, just so long as you're grabbing one part of the beast, then you'll be fine. If you want to hear a contemporary expression of Don Cupid's thesis, set your alarm for six o'clock on a Sunday morning and listen to the BBC's unfortunately named Something Understood. It may cause you to have a hernia and so forth, but give it a go. Take your sledgehammer to the radio. But of course, Cupid's thesis only stands if God is not objectively real or if God has not actually revealed himself. I mean, the moment you're dealing with an objectively real God who has actually revealed himself, well, the whole thing comes crumbling down. And so, Don Cupid, Mark Tully, something understood, the BBC, something deeply confused and so forth. Once we begin to deal with a God who has made himself known, we have to say is palpable nonsense. But generations have been subjected to this idea. It's been described by one Times correspondent as the spongiform creed of the British establishment. And religious pluralism, the idea that we can quite happily hold to plural truths without one or another being wrong, has really taken hold in our culture such that the whole concept of truth itself is put in question. Well, it's really very refreshing when you get to the close of the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus flatly contradicts everything we were taught in year nine. And you can see verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. There are just two gates. One is right, one is wrong. And then beware the false prophets. They're just two trees. One bears good fruit, one bears rotten fruit. And then not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there are two claims. One is right, the other is false. 
and then build your house on the rock. There are two buildings, and one will come crashing down, and one will stand. So we're in the closing section of the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't got time to correct what I think I got wrong last week, and it's always a bit grim when you get to the end of a talk like this and you think, oh my goodness, I made a schoolboy error, which I did. And so in the box there, you'll see just on the right, I've sought to correct the structure of the Sermon on the Mount that I put to you last week, where I think I was just a couple of verses out, foolishly, too much of a hurry, go back and redo your homework, say the teachers in my family, of whom there are many. Now, from verse 13, then, the final appeal. And this week, well, we have uh, the two roads. Or, Or should I say, actually, this week, two gates, two roads, two crowds, two destinies. In fact, there are two ways to live being laid out for us. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, the beautiful life, and concludes with two ways to live. And in the middle, we have morality, spirituality, and satisfaction. So two gates. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it by it are many. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Well, we have to begin by asking where these gates are situated and to what these gates grant access. Are these gates right at the end of the road less traveled? Does the journey culminate in the gate so that finally one reaches it then enters? Or are the gates at the start of the journey? such that once one has entered, one is already in, but the path ahead is hard. I think it has to be the latter. The point is not that I live this life now in a countercultural existence, treading the hard path, and only then at the end, by way of reward, enter. That would contradict everything Jesus said in the sermon, and indeed what's written in these verses. Enter, and then the path. And what are the gates, the gateway to? Well, again, in the context of the sermon, it has to be the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom, says Jesus. It has to be all the blessings of belonging to God, the good life. The life of joy in knowing the Father, of contentment, of having the creator of the universe as our Father in heaven. Enter by the narrow gate. Just a couple of observations Jesus' invitation, it seems, is issued and spread abroad far and wide. Multiple listeners hear it. Here in Matthew 5, there's a great crowd gathered. They're thronging around this small band of disciples. They all hear it. Later in uh, Matthew 11, when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, there's a great crowd that hear that invitation. In Matthew 13, the word is broadcast, far and wide. 22, they go out to the highways and the byways and issue the invitation. 28, go and make disciples of all nations. So the invitation goes far and wide, but it seems, well, only a few enter through the gate. 
It should not surprise us then, as Wes is talking about, you know, meals with a message and uh, conversations with coffee and so forth, as we invite friends and colleagues to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that, well, only a few respond. Jesus tells us, only a few will enter. Second observation on this first point, do you know, it struck me as we've gone through the sermon that the sermon also explains why so few enter. The word for narrow is the word from which we get our word stenography, narrow writing. There's a suggestion that the word implies restrictive obstacles, barriers. Is the entrance overgrown? Is it tucked away? Is there a hidden garden? Is it that a person has to lay aside their baggage if they're going to get through? Is it a turnstile, one at a time? What prevents people from entering? Well, in the sermon, in chapter 5, Jesus says people will revile and persecute you if you follow Jesus. So perhaps it's the fear of man that will prevent some from entering. What will my parents think? My peers? My partner? I can think of a number of individuals here in the city who've come so close to the door and then the fear of man or what their husband or wife might say. They've never gone through. What prevents people from entry? Earlier, Jesus has said, do not store up treasure on on earth. Uh, For some, I think it's probably possessions. We're not prepared to strip down to enter. We want to carry the baggage. There is something just too precious. What prevents people from entering? Well, right at the start of the sermon, we had the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Pride, I suspect, for many. To my great shame, when I first encountered Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel, one of the things that held me back from wholesale discipleship was that I didn't want to be associated with Jesus' disciples. And when I look back on it, I think what an arrogant prat I was. But that's sometimes the case, isn't it? Remember Naaman? Go and wash in the river. I can't wash in the river of Jordan. I wouldn't want to get filthy there with all those other people. Two gates. Two roads. Well, you can see there are two roads. The gate is wide and the way is easy. Actually, that word easy is better translated broad or spacious. And so people throng along the broad road. There's no one battling against the tide of humanity on this road. It's all hail fellow well met, back slapping and fist bumping, bonhomie and joie de vivre. And travelers follow their own inclinations, their own desires their own code of conduct, their own opinion, tolerance, the majority opinion, permissiveness. There are no curbs or boundaries, no discipline or doctrinal clarity, no patterns of discipleship. And I guess on the broad road there are signs, and the signs spell things like self-love or self-promotion or self-advancement or superficial pleasure. And the current is strong and the flow is forceful. And the banks are wide apart and the sun shines and the pleasure cruisers abound. And the gate 
is broad and the way is easy. But there's another road, actually. It's not so much a path. If you look at it in verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's not so much a road, it's more of a path, a narrow stony track up the mountain, perhaps. Brambles and thorns brushing the traveler's face as they travel. Rocks and boulders in the way. A sheer cliff to either side. Danger. Few laybys for respite. I think Tolkien captures this brilliantly. I don't know if you've read or watched Lord of the Rings. There's this brilliant piece where Samwise and Frodo make it up the mountain pass. And eventually exhausted, Sam says to Frodo, I'll crawl. And then Tolkien puts it like this, foot by foot, like small gray insects, they crept up the slope. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So by way of observation, it looks like there are two roads and there's one along which one can drift without hardly even realizing it. And there's another where constant attention, constant decision-making, constant concentration and constant battle is the norm. Some of you regulars know that I quite like to go fishing. And when you're standing in a river, you know, there are moments where, yeah, the current is strong, but the flow is slow. And a piece of dead wood floats past. And then a piece of weed that's no longer attached to the bottom and a bit of debris and occasionally a dead fish floating down the broad stream. And then you get to the rapids And the river has narrowed. And there's a tree growing in the rapids, but how it's clinging on, you just can't imagine. And then a fish leaps and its silver scales shimmer with muscles rippling and full of life. It's alive. And here are the two paths. I, I remember when first I started to follow Jesus and went through the narrow gate. And I'd never had to make so many difficult decisions and choose between right and wrong and battle, and fight temptation. And I guess the second observation on the two roads is that it seems that once having entered through the gate, the road less traveled is full of potential sidewaters, which look so enticing and seem to lead back into the broad stream. And each one is a desperate cul-de-sac, and temptations abound, and siren voices call. Two gates, two roads, two crowds. Well, now again, I think I have to correct myself even before I finish the talk because I don't think two crowds is quite right. I think there's one crowd and then, well, there are just lonely travelers picking their way along the path. The crowd throngs, the crowd is a mass, the crowd move as one, it's Oxford Street on Christmas Eve, it's London Bridge on Thursday morning, it's Stanford Bridge on match day, it's the Mall at the Platinum Jubilee. It's a, it's a vast throng of people and the atmosphere is convivial and there are loving cups and parties and anything goes. And the crowd is full of those offering their point of view and their take, their insight and the sea of faith is the very thing that propels the crowd along. Something understood is welcomed with open arms. 
And then there's, well, a crowd, well, a few lonely travelers. And so by way of observation, you know, it seems that majority opinion counts for nothing with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't appear concerned or worried about his ratings. What matters for Jesus is authenticity, not acceptability. And public popularity is not Jesus' concern. And truth is. And the vast majority of mankind can be vastly wrong. Remember the big short, 2007? Remember the tech bot bubble? And under the two crowds, the other thing which I think is so striking is that when it comes to the Christian faith, there seems to be no small print. That's one of the reasons why I love the teaching of Jesus. Oh yeah, he spells out for us the beautiful life, and it really is beautiful. But there's no small print, none of that sort of stuff you might find, if I may say, in your insurance policy. And none of that. And I'm reading the Bible, John's Gospel, one-to-one with one of my neighbors at the moment. And we've been reading through John's Gospel. And the thing we noticed as we got to chapter 8, that this was the third time where Jesus says something really tough. And numbers of people turn away from him. There's nothing hidden. And how much this contrasts with what passes as Christianity today, where people would say, oh, follow Jesus, please, if you would, if it's not too much trouble. And Jesus will make you happy and healthy and well, and Jesus will be whatever you want him to be, potato head Jesus, if you like. Have Jesus on your terms, not his. And Jesus says, no, there's a narrow path and a narrow gate, and there are two crowds, and there are few that find it. So Jesus is not begging for popularity or looking for your vote or anything as pathetic as that. He comes to us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he offers us a stark choice. Two gates, two roads, two crowds, two destinies. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, how often in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus has said the unsayable? (laughs) I've wondered on a number of occasions as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount whether it would be right to suggest that Jesus is the most gaslit individual in all of history. He's certainly the most cancelled. And in these closing three or four, five or six, seven or eight verses, four times he takes us to it. It leads to destruction, he says. And then in verse 19, it will be cut down and thrown into the fire, he says. And then in verse 23... I never knew you depart from me, he says. And then in verse 27, the floods came and great was the fall of it. And so Jesus holds before us two gates, two roads, two crowds, two destinies. And the contours of the Sermon on the Mount really are the beautiful life. It makes sense. It really is beautiful. 
but it's tough. And Jesus commands us to enter. One leads to life, the other to destruction. One leads to judgment, the other to life. One leads to heaven, the other to hell. One leads to perishing and the other to eternity. And it is possible, well, unknowingly, to be drifting down the river with the vast mass of humanity upstream of the Niagara, admiring the view, even to spot somewhere on a cliff, up, oh, there's a funny little path up there. I wonder what it's like. It looks so lovely as you head towards the fall. And it turns out that Don Cupid and the Sea of Faith and what you and I were taught in year nine and the blindfold individuals and the elephant and the religion of the BBC, do you know it's sort of right? It's sort of right? Because like the fiber optic cable with its multiple fiber optic strands, in the religions of humanity, well, they're all heading along the same path to destruction. But there is another one, another path. I don't think there is such a thing as a fiber optic strand that runs counter to the fiber optic cable. I wish there was. It would make such a good illustration. But there is a gate. And there is a road. And there is, well, a handful of individuals. And there is a destiny. Let's pray together. Enter through the narrow gate. Thank you for this command, our Father, for the clarity of Jesus' call. And we pray that you would enable each one of us in this room to choose well. In Jesus' name, amen.